All right, well, good morning, everyone. My name is Bradford McGann, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Northwestern University Law Review. On behalf of the journal, I'm delighted to welcome all of you, here and participating virtually, to the Law Review's 2022 Symposium, Fraud and the Erosion of Public Trust. Now, when I was preparing my remarks, I thought to myself, what wise and timely words on fraud can I use to set the tone for the event? So I did what any good law student would do, and I opened up my one on notes from Torts. Now, this is an admittedly risky move because one of our organizers, Professor Cadence, was my Torts professor, so please forgive me, Professor, if I don't stick the landing on this cold call. Black's Law Dictionary defines fraud as a knowing misrepresentation or knowing concealment of a material fact made to induce another to act to his or her detriment. But Black's doesn't stop there. From this foundational definition, we also draw consumer fraud committed by a seller or an advertiser to induce a person to buy goods, or healthcare fraud committed to claim a higher payment for health care services than the provider is entitled to. And fans of mobster movies will be familiar with wire and mail fraud. And even more insidiously, there is affinity fraud, where a fraudster tailors their fraud to target members of a particular group. But you don't have to comb through Black's Law Dictionary to understand how ubiquitous fraud is and has always been in our society. Browsing Netflix can quickly turn into a doom scroll through fraud in the 21st century. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, an estimated 15% of federal paycheck protection program loans totaling more than $76 billion, went to fraudulent claims. And false claims of election fraud are rife in public discourse, undermining confidence in our democracy and the legitimacy of our institutions. Here in Chicago, in the community of North Lawndale, almost a decade-long reverse mortgage fraud scheme defrauded approximately 122 victims, primarily elderly minority homeowners, of nearly $10 million of equity in their homes from 2009 to 2016. So while the method, methods may be more innovative, none of the conduct underlying these fraud schemes is new. Fraud ranks among society's oldest offenses. But it is undeniable that deception, misrepresentation, and criminal civil fraud seem to be increasing in the United States today and are contributing to a growing sense of detachment and destabilization. So in response, the symposium raises two questions. Has fraud so significantly undermined trust in individuals, in government, and in market actors that's threatening societal stability? And if so, what is the best response? Those questions bring me well past the end of my one-all notes, and Professor Cadence didn't cut me off, so I think I'll take that as a good sign. Before I turn the floor to Professor Ballison to set the agenda for today, a few things are in order. First, I'd like to thank Dean Hari Osofsky, the Director of Special Events, Sebastian Bujak, and the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law Administration for their support of the Law Review and the Symposium. Thank you to our Journal Ministry Advisors, Marianne Wu, James McMasters, and Eileen McAleer, and to our faculty advisors, Professor James Fander and Aaron Delaney, for your mentorship and guidance throughout the symposium planning process. I'd also like to thank the Compass team, the AV team, and the facilities team for their catering and logistics support throughout this event. And to our organizers, Professor Emily Cadens and Edward Ballison, thank you for sharing and trusting your vision with the Law Review. And thank you to all of our speakers as well, and moderators, particularly our keynote judge, uh, speaker, Judge Jed Rakoff, for traveling across the country to share your knowledge and experience with us. I've also saved the most important things for last. Sarah, can you stand up real quick? For those who don't know, Sarah Wolfnight Gray is the Law Review Senior Symposium Editor, or as I like to call her, the Symposium Editor-in-Chief. Since January, Sarah has worked tirelessly to plan every detail of today's symposium. 
And through all of this, Sarah has also created new opportunities for student scholarship. For the first time in recent memory, the symposium issue of the Law Review, which collects essays written by today's speakers, will feature an essay written by a student scholar. This issue will be published in August 2023 in Volume 118, Issue 1. I'm not exaggerating when I say that none of what you see today would have been possible without Sarah. So please join me in giving her a round of applause. Thank you all for joining us here today. I'm going to turn the floor now to Professor Ballison to talk through the agenda for the symposium. Thanks so much, Bradford. And uh, thanks again also to, uh, to Sarah and to Emily, who uh, also did a, just a tremendous amount of work uh, to, make this, to make this possible. Um, so, so let me let me just uh, start out by uh, giving you a sense of the arc of the day. The format, I guess, is a bit of an experiment. It's hard for me to say that because I haven't seen this before, but this is what I gather. Uh, we still have a keynote at, at, uh, in the middle of the, the symposium, and we're very fortunate to have Judge Rakoff uh, providing that, that keynote. Uh, but our aspiration for the other sessions is to have as much interaction and dialogue as possible. That, 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 that dialogue will be framed in the first two sessions by uh, notably short presentations. Um, and then in, in the third session, we'll be having a, a roundtable discussion with, with legal practitioners, uh, a remarkable group of, of individuals who have, I think, collectively over 150 years of dealing with fraud as a, a legal and societal problem. Uh, there are going to be a lot of opportunities for engagement. Uh, there's, an, I believe, a mechanism for you to submit questions uh, online throughout the day. We'll be tracking those and, and hopefully referencing them as we, we go through the more uh, uh, the dialogue, the, the, the conversational parts of, 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 the after, of the morning and then afternoon. Uh, I also want to underscore the opportunity uh, to stick around at four for an extended reception where you'll have the opportunity to continue the dialogue conversation with, with members uh, on each of the panels. First panel is going to be looking at uh, some conceptual issues around how to make sense of fraud from different disciplinary perspectives. Uh, second panel, digging into some specific contemporary uh, contexts where, where uh, uh, policymakers and, uh, and, and lawyers and uh, legal scholars have to parse through uh, some of the difficult issues around fraud. Uh, and then again, that third panel with, with practitioners. Um, as Bradford suggested, fraud is a vexing issue. Uh, it's often tough to distinguish outright misrepresentation or deception from exaggeration or puffery. Uh, th this is a, an area that's bound up with emotion and cognitive heuristics. It's often complicated to prove in court. It's tough to police. It exists in the shadows, that's the point of deception. And so it's also hard to measure. It has a potentially corrosive impact on broader dynamics of trust, which are so essential uh, to economic relationships in the modern world. And whenever, and periodically there are, crackdowns uh, against fraudulent activity, uh, especially administrative mechanisms uh, uh, that, that, that are part of crackdowns. Invariably, it, th these lead to complaints about the threats those crackdowns pose to entrepreneurial freedom and values of due process. 
So uh, today's symposium is going to offer us many angles of vision on this really complicated problem. Uh, mostly, we're going to be focusing on, uh, uh, on how that plays out in the United States and in the uh, more recent past and in the present. Uh, but we will be engaging occasionally with the dynamics elsewhere, in Europe particularly, and in the deeper past. Just a few words about uh, histor the historical context in the United States. Just a few points here that I think set the stage for the conversation. Uh, in the United States, there's been an enduring attachment to the notion of caveat emptor, that economic actors should look out for themselves, that they should beware of their counterparties. This was particularly a powerful notion in the 19th century, and it was bound up with ideals of individualism, competition, uh, and the possibility of democratic advancement, at least for white men. Uh, that, gave, that, that, that attachment did give way in many contexts from the late 19th uh, in, uh, century into the 1970s uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, the recognition that fraud was often widespread, uh, that there were increasingly information asymmetries that percolated through uh, economic relationships because of industrialization and the expansion of transportation and communications networks, um, and that the, the widespread incidence of fraud actually created problems of confidence for many economic parties in, in specific markets. As a result, in that period, you had the creation of lots of regulatory regimes uh, to certify the truthfulness of, of economic speech. More recently, in the last 40 years or so, the picture has become uh, complicated and more mixed. On the one hand, there have been many pullbacks, especially around enforcement, as a result of a broader uh, ethos of deregulation that has characterized many aspects of policy in the United States. And yet, at the same time, there's been a recognition of new challenges posed by the expansion of information technology, social media, uh, global processes of globalization, uh, innovation related to financial engineering, all of which, at least occasionally, usually after major scandals or crises, has led to some kind of significant policy response. The creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for example, uh, the rise of multi-state class action lawsuits uh, from attorneys general. Uh, we're gonna be exploring many themes today. Uh, let me just highlight a few for you to keep track of. First, uh, the significance of social identity as a shaper of how people perceive the issue of fraud, both with respect to perpetrators and those who are harmed, victims. Uh, secondly, the interplay between formal legal structures and informal culture uh, and practices of enforcement. Uh, third, uh, the role of intermediaries. Uh, and, and uh, gatekeepers and monitors uh, who may be outside the state, particularly professionals like lawyers and accountants, along with the press. Uh, and then finally, if you pull all these things together, the importance of thinking about this issue with an eye towards uh, what I would call regulatory ecosystems. Uh, the bundles of rules and institutions and actors who grapple with issues around economic decision, uh, deception, try to make sense of it, try to set uh, frameworks for transactions and decision making, all of which has become considerably more complex with the passage of time. So with that, let's turn our attention 
to the uh, first panel. Uh, when we're we're going to have the opportunity uh, to to dig into some conceptual frameworks for making sense of this phenomenon of of economic misrepresentation and its implications for social trust. Uh, we have four presenters. I am not going to offer extensive introductions. I can assure you they are all eminent scholars. Um, we are going to have, I'm just going to uh, mention uh, the, uh, the participants briefly in order now, and then I'm going to turn it over to them for their brief presentations. So uh, first up, we're going to have Bill Black, who is a professor of law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and also uh, the University of Minnesota Law School. Uh, and he's going to give us some things to think about from the perspective of criminology. Then we'll have hear from Brooke Harrington, who is a professor of sociology at Dartmouth. Uh, and she will be giving us some thoughts about a sociological lens on economic deception. After that, we'll be hearing from uh, Gregory Kloss, uh, law professor at Georgetown, uh, and Tess Wilkinson-Ryan, who's at uh, Penn Law School. And they're going to be uh, giving us uh, a psychological lens on fraud. And then we're going we're gonna to close the session with Northwestern's own Emily Cadence, uh, who will be providing historical insights uh, and taking us back more, more deeply into the past. So with that, uh, let me turn the floor over to Bill Black. So let's see if they actually appear. How do you like it so far? There <laughs> we go. Okay. Uh, thank you to everyone to put it together. Thank you for the uh, introductions. Uh, actually, my primary appointment is in economics, uh, joint appointment uh, in law, but I do also have a doctorate uh, in criminology. My research specialty uh, is elite white-collar crime and corruption, but that includes not just fraud, but predation. Uh, and indeed, that's where economics and criminology are moving heavily. A common feature, of course, is deceit. And Sun Tzu recognized thousands of years ago that the art of war is deceit, the art of fraud, the art of predation is deceit as well. So what is fraud and predation? I get you to trust me, typically through deception, and then I betray that trust in order to get something of value from you, right? Uh, I was also a practitioner, so I was, I'm on my third career. My first career was a typical big firm lawyer, uh, then I became a regulator in the heart of the savings and loan crisis, have uh, considerable scar tissue from the politicians uh, that uh, were uh, unleashed at the behest of the worst frauds there. Then when I was 40, went back and got a PhD. By the way, I highly recommend this. It is so much more fun uh, going back when you don't give a damn about any of the, the crap and you're just there to learn uh, type of thing. So. Um, Think about uh, where you want to go and move your career uh, if it makes sense. Anyway, that 
make your own life. Uh, but uh, for me, that, that worked out uh, pretty well. Let's see if I can actually get this to advance. No, that was the wrong. <laughs> okay, we don't need no sticking slides. Oh, it's back. The one that doesn't have, the one that's worn off, of course. Uh, guys and Nels, um, fraud. Um, he knows where the spots are on the dice. Uh, go, go watch it uh, on uh, YouTube or something like that. Okay, uh, so I'm a master also of what uh, at the big firm I started at, we refer to as uh, career limiting gestures. Um, and uh, that is, uh, you know, telling the Speaker of the House that he's actually wrong and having him be, uh, start swearing and screaming at you from six feet away uh, and such. And uh, my 15 minutes of fame was provided, of course, by the uh, most elite fraudster of the savings and loan crisis, Charles Keating, who was a lawyer and put in writing, highest priority, get black, kill him dead type of thing. Then sued me for $400 million, hired private detectives twice, uh, tried very hard to get me fired, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So I've been asked to look at a couple of areas. One is, of course, this whole question of the interrelationship of fraud and trust. And there I would emphasize there's a danger of putting the cart before the horse, right? Because it's trust where trust is inappropriate that is the problem, right? That's why people, that's why we have this division in terms of elections. There are tens of millions of people that trust sources that are insane, right? That lie constantly to them, but they believe them, right? There is self-deluded in some sense, but for most of us, it's someone who is deliberately gaining our trust and they often do that through deception, right? Yeah, I'm trying to look at that, uh, the time as well. Right? And then they're going to betray that trust. So it's quite rational and indeed essential that we stop trusting people who are untrustworthy <laughs> because otherwise very bad things happen. And I'll just say it in the 15 second version, we all almost certainly will emphasize predation and fraud that is financial in this setting, because we almost always do. But remember, predation is the leading cause of avoidable, or at least premature, death and morbidity in the world. And we'll probably not get to that much, but as a criminologist, uh, it's really important to keep that in mind. It ain't just money. Um, it's getting people to believe that cigarettes really aren't that bad, that lead in gasoline is a great idea, that lead in paint is a great idea. And we are still paying, and the world is still paying, uh, for what we did uh, in these kinds of settings. All right. The other message is, be of good cheer. In impossible circumstances, it is actually possible, at least for a time, to succeed against incredibly elite fraud. So here we go. I was asked to talk about how economists perceive a fraud, and here's the short answer. They silently assume it out of existence 
and they do it in numerous ways. And I'm just going to go on from there. There are numerous slides that I put together that explain the mechanics, and we can come back to it if that makes sense. But it simply isn't conceivable. So Milton Friedman is a classic uh, person on this. If exchange trade is voluntary, it will take place if and only if both parties do benefit. Each can never be worse off. He can only be better off. That is absolutely false. That is, and there is Nobel laureate after Nobel laureate in economics who says a variant of that same phrase, and that's how they teach economic students. And uh, Akerlof and Romer, two Nobel laureates, famous article because they came out to us, the savings and loan regulators, reviewed our work and our theories about frauds, and said, you know, it's the regulators that are right, God forbid. I mean, imagine that from economists, right? And their title says it all, looting the economic underworld of bankruptcy for profit. So what you are relentlessly taught in economics is you don't need to worry about any stinking fraud. This is Stigler, again, um, who was at UChicago. Even when fraud or coercion is unambiguous in the eyes of society, there is no reason to believe that ordinary economic analysis is inapplicable. Fraudulent securities will be supplied in such quantity that their marginal costs, including selling costs, equal their marginal revenue. He didn't study that. That was not an empirical statement. It was a purely ideological statement. It's an absolutely false statement. And one would expect criminals to, would not expect them to earn anything. Well, actually, they earn, in economics jargon, supernormal profits. And indeed, economic theory says the only way they're going to achieve supernormal profits is through fraud. Right? So this is what they're taught about ethics. This is the leading person writing economic textbooks in the, in the world, Greg Mankiw at to Harvard. It would be irrational for operators of savings and loans not to loot. And that wasn't an off the cup. He was a discussant and he was reading a written, prepared statement, right? So if you don't commit fraud, you're not moral, you're crazy, you're irrational, right? And how do they eventually get out of all of this? Well, a silent assumption of this core model of economics uh, is property is so well-defined that you don't have to spend any resources preventing theft or fraud. It's implicit. Notice this trend, silent, implicit, unmodeled. That means you don't say it out loud. You don't alert your students. You sure as hell don't review, alert the reviewers of your paper. It is implicit in the model that no one even thinks about breaking the law. It's unmodeled and there is an ADM God. Now talk about heroic assumptions. That's about as a heroic as you can get. And the ADM God is the God, of course, the God of laissez-faire and prevents all problems. So uh, Rajan, it is easy to track and audit the returns most financial managers generate. So fudging is usually not an option. Actually, it's incredibly easy. We want somebody who's told us that? Warren Buffett says that absolutely explicitly. And that's 
I can tell you as a regulator and I can tell you from banking. All right. So Nobel Prize just awarded three weeks ago, right? And it solves the problem, right? Just having a bank solves the problem. There aren't any bank problems. They're saying this in 2022 after the great financial crisis. So it isn't simply that you aren't taught, you are taught falsities in which you must ignore all of history. So <laughs> this is the best one, where is economics? This is a study, rare study that actually, sorry, looks, looks at fraud. And it found fraud at all of the largest banks, all of them. And this is how they put it together. And I swear, this is not irony. They're finance scholars. They're incapable of irony, right? <laughs> all the reputable intermediaries involved themselves in fraud. So you don't become disreputable even when you commit massive frauds and blow up the economy, because it most assuredly is fraud that blew up the economy. All right, so how did we succeed as regulators? In the savings and loan crisis, we got over 1,700 felony convictions. We hyper-prioritized them to the most elite people. Our motto was, never be the ones chasing mice while lions roam the campsite. How did we succeed in the 32nd version? Our opponents. Our effort was hopeless. The amount of political power against us was overwhelming. They crushed us, but we went down as a rear guard. And the public became enraged at the brazenness of what they did. And then Charles Keating did us the greatest favor in a terrible thing. He sold uninsured junk bonds out of the holding, of the holding company, out of the branches of the savings and loan, targeting widows. And for the first time, there was a human face to a victim, and that face was your grandmother. Thank you very much. it's worn away. Oh, this one. Okay. Yes, that's, Good. that's actually yours. Hello. I want to thank Professor Cadence and Professor Ballison for inviting a, the lone sociologist to this conference. I appreciate being included in this, and it's um, very useful to come directly after Professor Black because um, my title slide... Oh boy, this doesn't bode well for me. Uh, brevity not being my strong suit. Um, this lady is Madame de Pompadour. Anyone know who she was? Sort of like the Michael Jordan of uh, courtesans in the 18th century. She was the mistress of Louis XV. And she, this famous phrase is attributed to her, après nous le déluge, which is sort of the motto of the white collar criminals that Professor Black just told us about. Um, and basically it means who cares? We, we looted, and by the time anyone figures it out, we'll be long gone. No one's going to hold us accountable. 
So as a sociologist, an economic sociologist, I get to study all the stuff that Professor Black just told us is excluded from economics. And I teach my students every year about all the crazy things that economists exclude from their analyses in order to come up with physics-like, elegant, parsimonious models. But I didn't know that they actually go so far as to claim that there's no such thing as fraud. That is really like Wizard of Oz level incredible. Anyways, so that's where I'm coming from as a sociologist. And I want to talk to you today about sort of the origins of fraud and how sociologists understand it as a multi-level phenomenon that involves not only these um, looting elites, but also uh, the meso level of organizations that Professor Black has already talked about, plus the sort of superstructure, the institutional superstructure of um, the legal environment. So in the beginning, as we all know, if you read Professor Caden's Precy, there was fraud. Even Hammurabi talks about it um, 4,000 years ago. And you got the death penalty, by the way. They were serious. I mean, imagine, talk about kill him dead, right? Show that to Charles Keating. Fernand Braudel, the, the famous French historian of economics, talks about these centuries of what he calls the thick scum of fraud and intrigue surrounding finance. Um, but compared to what we see today, it was small potatoes. It was people trying to get out of like levies on, on imports, for example. Small time stuff. Then the, the watershed moment was 1720 when fraud really got state sponsorship and that put sort of jet fuel on the whole phenomenon. Um, some of you probably know about the, that, that year which gave rise to the South Sea bubble in the UK and the Banque de France scandal in, in France. And uh, Professor Ballison has alluded to that in his own book. So if you're not familiar with them, they were both monarchy-led scams to rip off the people of these countries uh, because the monarchs had uh, incurred massive war debts they couldn't pay off and they were afraid to raise taxes because if you raise them too high, people revolt. So they still needed the money and they figured out that they could sell um, shares in some of the first corporations endorsed by the monarchy. And remember, these were god kings, right? Mon Dieu et mon Dieu. It was the theme of, of the UK monarchy. God gives me the right. So wh who, what's not to trust, right? Well, people got fleeced, not surprisingly. And this gave rise to this whole range of cultural production lamenting how people who were flying high got ripped off. These are some of the broadsides that were published um, in the UK. Uh, in the second half of 1720. This is a, an original share in the, the Banque de France scandal. Um, people were ruined from the monarchy on down. It was like the 2008 financial crisis, but no one had ever seen anything like that before. And the bad news is that sort of thing is happening 300 years later, um, mostly through offshore financial centers, but certainly not exclusively. I mention this because offshore finance is what I study. Um, and you may have heard of them as tax havens, but they're much, much worse than that. They're basically state-sponsored law-free zones. And you don't just evade taxes there, you avoid paying back your creditors, paying legal judgments, um, you name it, you can probably avoid. Oh, sanctions, UN charters, 
anything you don't feel like abiding by, well, there's probably an offshore financial center that will help you do that. What does this have to do with the state? Well, the whole offshore system was the project of post-imperial countries trying to offload financial responsibility for their former colonies. So many of these former colonies were tiny little islands that had no, no way to support themselves. A very cheap way to support yourself and get money coming in quickly is to have a working phone line and what used to be called a telex, a primitive communication system that worked on paper. Um, anybody can set up a bank, and as long as you've got a phone line, you're in business for offshore finance. Quick way to get some incoming revenues. It has always benefited elites more than it's benefited anyone who actually lived in those offshore financial centers. It's often bankrupted a lot of people. So from a sociological point of view, here's what we want to know. Why do these things keep happening? Three centuries and like nobody's wised up or nobody has decided, okay, enough, basta. Why aren't, punish uh -oh. Why aren't punishments and regulatory change more effective in stopping it? Why do individuals agree to this? Are there really that many bad people in the world? So the sort of generalized hypothesis we have as soci sociologists is that it's not just one of those things ever. It's always two or three of those levels of analysis interacting with one another. So why would we want that? Um, Multi-level models help us explain things that otherwise just look irrational, as Professor Black just told us. Um, for example, in my previous work, I studied how American investors bought stocks in companies they knew to be fraudulent. They walked right in with their eyes open. Um, for them, the decision was, well, what else would we buy? That's all we've got to buy. And we're basically required to buy something if we want to have anything to retire on. So our menu is a menu of investments in companies that are fraudulent at various levels. So we're just going to hold our nose and do it. I like to draw schematics. So this is my little schematic of three levels of analysis. The macro, institutional, which is mostly governance institutions, but not entirely. The meso level of organizations, regulatory agencies, networks, elite networks, for example, and then individuals where the rubber meets the road and someone has to decide yes or no, am I going to be economically rational and commit fraud as Professor Manku tells us we should, or are we not going to commit fraud? So as I just mentioned, macro level institutions, um, this is where you get these state endorsements of fraud from the South Sea bubble and the Banque de France all the way up to the offshore system today. Public agencies um, like the regulators that Professor Black used to work for, they mediate the opportunity structure for individuals. Um, Professor Cadence talks about another mediating organization, the guilds in, in her work. Um, Georg Simmel, who is a, a famous sociologist of the last century, he talked about how elites have these networks or secret societies without which a lot of the, the fraud and uh, inequality we see couldn't exist. And then, of course, individuals. I study elites as perpetrators of fraud. Um, and in that, under that rubric, 
we can fit the, the work of Professor Ballison and the work of Professors Class and Wilkinson Ryan, um, because they're talking about the various characteristics of people who commit fraud, like how they vary in their intentions and methods depending on things like gender and race and age. So what makes a sociological analysis different is that, for example, other, many other disciplines look at what's called the fraud triangle. That's what this is. Um, and it, the fraud triangle is an, an analytical tool that sort of implicitly comes from the individual level of analysis. It sort of gestures at higher levels, like organizations and and regulatory environments, but it doesn't actually make them explicit and analyze them separately. Sociology does. Law sort of gets into this macrostructural environmental set of issues that I'm, I'm alluding to too, but sociology kind of pulls it all together. So we ask about things like how do individuals and organizations respond to macrostructures? How do the organizations like regulatory agencies mediate those opportunities? and what types of individual agency are available. So where I'm hoping to go next, and what I would like to learn from listening to the illustrious folks gathered here is, there's still a lot we need to know about how those three levels interact. The model I've offered you is, is a work in progress. It's incomplete. So if you look at my pricey, I, I have this little three by three diagram. Sociologists love that kind of thing. And I've had to identify how each actors at each of those three levels can be victims, perpetrators, or protectors against fraud. It's sort of a start at, at sort of brain dumping what I'm trying to build here. And I'd welcome any of, of the input you might have to offer. Um, hopefully, what will come out of this for me and maybe for all of you is better answers to some of the really big questions like, is fraud really necessary? Because if you go back to Marx or um, scholars like, like Wolf and uh, Professor Copeland, you might get the impression that yeah, it kind of is, at least if you're gonna have a capitalist market economy. Um, if so, how can we predict the shifting normative and legal boundaries of fraud? Uh, if you've read Professor Ballison's book or followed the work of Professor Macy, um, you know that definitions of fraud change over time. Well, why and how? We need to know more about that. And finally, how do we account for the externalities created by fraud? Um, Professor Black alluded to some of those, like the impoverished widows. But there are all kinds of sort of long-term knock-on effects in, in society and markets that happened due to fraud that we don't really have a good way of accounting for. I'd like to know more about that. So with that, I will yield the floor and uh, look forward to hearing from you. Okay. <clears throat> ah, there we go. I should stop here. These are tests. I'll go one more. Oh yeah, this, it's, okay. So, uh, um, Thank you so much for uh, inviting us, and it's really, um, this is, I'm looking forward to today. I think this, this day is a great idea. I, I published a short piece about a decade ago called The Law of Deception, a Research Agenda, and uh, the claim, which I still believe, is that at least among legal scholars, we, we often 
we don't study the law of deception as a whole. All that collection of laws that, that deal with lies and, and wrongful omissions, um, it's scattered across uh, traditional legal categories, you know, whether it's the tort of deceit or criminal fraud, securities fraud. And as students, you learn about it in a bunch of different courses, but in fact, there are questions that cut across those categories and we should be thinking about it systematically. So great idea to have the symposium. Um, Bill said something that, that is a nice way to tee up what we're thinking about, which is the problem is not the lie, the problem is the trust. Um, I, I think that was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but actually it nicely sets up a question. If you go, um, uh, the, everybody here is probably taking torts, and as you know, it takes two to commit a tort. The victim is often also an agent. That's why we have ideas like contributory negligence coming into, coming into the um, uh, tort law. And in the case of deception, right, it takes both the deceiver and the deceived. The deceived can also be an agent, right? Misplaced trust. So if you go back to uh, Ed's book, um, when he says, look, the, the, the idea of the 19th century caveat emptor is that the individual who misplaced their trust was them, they were at fault. Right, for having been deceived. So sometimes we blame the deceived person for the fraud as or for, 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 for the deception rather than the deceiver. So in 19th century uh, ways of thinking about certain markets, right? Trust, you just shouldn't be trusting. And you don't understand the market for horses in the 19th century if you actually believe the things that you're told about horses. All right, so, so now that leads to the question about when do we blame the victim, right? When it, culturally and now as a matter of moral psychology, by, moral, by, by the moral judgments that we make, when do we expect more of, or when, do we, when, when do we blame the person who's, who's misplacing their trust? Another uh, thing that Ed observes in his book is that in the late 19th century, Caveat emptor belonged to markets that largely involved white men of means, and that when other disfavored groups started entering those markets, um, caveat emptor starts to wane because uh, 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 agency wasn't expected of those individuals, immigrants, poor workers, black people, and women. So, all right, that's the setup. Um, and in particular, we're, Tess and I are exploring the extent to which questions about gender and expectations with respect to uh, 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 agency still figure into our moral reasoning. So uh, everybody, I just one quick example. Most of you have probably read books by Arthur Murray, right? Uh, the, the dance class case. And um, it's absolutely clear that that's a, where um, uh, the plaintiff claims that she was duped into buying too many dance lessons, that gender is clearly playing a role in that. And the idea behind it is that, well, it's perhaps worse or more wrongful. She was vulnerable to deception and she requires more protection than other individuals. Uh, so, all right, that's a long windup. Um, the, what we're trying, what, what, I'm not an empirical psychologist, but Tess is, and so uh, we're trying to design some experiments to tease out whether these moral intuitions related to gender and responsibility for, 
for deception are still with us. Let me turn it over to you to kind of talk about what we're doing. Great, thank you. Um, so, so in, in part, this project came because I was um, I had been recently working on a set of um, questions about suckers. So, who's a sucker? What does it mean to play the fool? Um, and I had been thinking about cases like the Vokes versus Arthur Murray case, where you have a you know a, a, a widow who has been who she claims has been sort of duped into buying too many dance lessons. Um, other cases about um, things like buying cosmetics and being and, and the FTC being concerned that women were going to be fooled into believing that their skin was actually going to uh, get younger by using the cosmetics. And I was thinking there, there do seem to be there just seems to be this pattern of real concern about protecting the consumer, especially when the consumer is a woman. Um, but the the these sort of impressionistic observations about what's happening in the real world are also like deeply confounded by lots of other things that are going on, right? So it's very hard to know if it's actually sort of the gender of the individuals that's driving people's response to these kinds of cases. And so, and because I am otherwise an experimental psychologist, um, um, when Greg and I started talking about this project, we thought, why don't we take an experimental approach and try to figure out if we can control causation, right, control sort of gender as the, as the causation by using basically simple scenario studies. So I'll show you what we did. So the, well, what we're gonna see. Okay, so what you're about to see is a, is a basic scenario study where individuals who take uh, surveys online, in this case by a, um, by a platform that is called Prolific, which is incredible, um, that um, recruits people to take these short studies, in this case we're paying them a dollar fifty, um, half uh, half men, half women, even age of thirty-four, um, and we have, and this is a pre-registered study. And so, what they're seeing is a scenario which you don't need to read the whole thing. I'm just going to give you the gist of it. So, the gist of this scenario is that we have an individual who is selling a table, and the table looks in a picture like it might be vintage. Maybe it looks like a mid-century table. I don't know. Look, but in fact, the seller knows that this table is from his that his parents or, or him bought the table at like Target or Walmart or something for, for less money, for, for a low amount of money that wouldn't be, it's not valuable. Okay. So the question is, what happens to perceptions of this, of sort of varying levels of deceptive behavior by the seller if we randomly assign male gendered or female gendered names to the buyer and the seller? So these 1,000 subjects, we basically have 250 subjects in four different conditions. A male seller deceiving a male buyer, a male seller deceiving a female buyer, a female seller deceiving a male buyer, and a female seller deceiving a female buyer. Um, and here we're just doing that by, by, um, by varying the, the names of the parties, right? Um, okay. We used three different dependent variables here in part because we're trying to get some variance. We're trying to ask questions. So if you ask everybody in a scenario study like this, like, is it bad to lie to children? They're all going to be like, yes, very bad, right? Because it's just too obvious of a question. So we're trying to find things here that are that, that arguably there's going to be some play. There's going to be some play in the system where people might think, no, this sort of seems more okay. And so here we used three sort of deceptive type scenarios. Everyone, every subject sees all three of these. So one is just he tries to sell the table 
at the high price, at the price that, that the table would cost if it was vintage, and doesn't say anything else about it. That's called offer here. The other is, um, he, and here I'm using, this, I'm using the man selling to woman for full reasons that you see in a second. Um, another is the seller, the buyer indicates that she thinks the table might be actually vintage, and he just says nothing. <laughs> and the third is she indicates she thinks it might be, um, that it might be vintage, and he says, yes, it is vintage. He's bought it at an estate, so that's an outright lie. So it's sort of escalating. Okay, good. All right. Um, in the, that's what it looks like. For the people actually taking the survey, they're just clicking, how ethical do you think that this is? And they're going from highly unethical, which we're going to code as a one, to highly ethical, which we'll code as a seven. So as the, number, as the numbers go up, it gets more ethical. Okay. Here I'm showing you the, oh, sorry, we also asked them, um, should the, should the um, buyer be able to return the table once she's discovered the deception? That's, and then we coded that, I called that variable legal. So here you're seeing item by item the, um, how people's respond, how, uh, how the subjects responded. What I want to draw your attention to is that these are pretty small differences, right? These are all going to be real small differences. Um, and this is a, a, a marginal effect, right? This is not having a huge, um, overwhelming effect on the subjects. But you can see that the purple bar is consistently lower in the first three items and a little bit higher in the fourth, and that is statistically significant. So basically, subjects are unclear or um, wondering about different kinds of deception except men deceiving women. That one's more, more robustly viewed as unethical and more clearly viewed as a case in which there should be a return. Um, we also looked at these, um, at, looked at this at the gender of the subjects taking the test, taking the questionnaire. Um, and one thing that was uh, clearly true, and sort of these are these differences are actually quite robust, is that male subjects view deception as more permissible than female subjects overall, no matter who was doing the deceiving it. So you can so so the the um, green bar here is men, and the and the purple bar here is women. You can see that there's always a difference going in the predicted direction um, in that case. Um, we also asked at the end of the questionnaire, because we were trying to think, look, this table situation is relatively niche, right? It's like an it's like, you know, sort of people selling stuff on like Facebook Marketplace or something like that. And so we asked, look, most of the time, the, the seller is going to be a firm and the buyer is going to be an individual. And I wanted to tease out the intuition that my, that I guessed people had, which was, which I think is right, which, which is that corporations are gendered male in the sort of popular imagination. And we went around a little bit on how to do this, and finally we asked the question um, in the following way. We said, this is gonna be a weird question, but many of us know, many of us understand that there are certain non-gendered categories that, are, that, we, that we assign intuitive genders to. For example, um, uh, dogs are male and cats are female. <laughs> um, and that intuition seemed to get people on board seemed to get people to be able to at least understand the question and be able to answer it. And we said, do you think corporations have a gender? They could say yes. They, they could say male or female, or that's just a weird question. I'm not going to answer that. Um, and so here you're seeing that the biggest number is for male. The second biggest is for that's a weird question. And then like three people said that corporations are gendered female. Um, so next up for us is trying to think about how to test this with a corporate seller. Um, we're still working on it. It's very tricky, um, but we've tried to think about maybe thinking about not specific buyers, but maybe categories of buyers, um, like um, people buying items that are sold as being gendered. So shampoo, for example, would be something sold as gendered. Um, so this is where we are so far, and we would love to hear. I'm really looking forward to the discussion um, because we're thinking about where to go next. So thanks.
Now we get the really irrelevant stuff. So I uh, recently told a law professor that I study the history of commercial fraud. And he said, oh, so you mean like the South Sea bubble of 1720? And I said, no, like the Middle Ages. Really, he said, I thought that before the South Sea bubble, everyone was honest. <laughs> it's actually not that unusual for people to believe that fraud is a modern phenomenon. But in fact, many types of fraud and most of the types of fraud prevention have existed throughout the history of organized society. As such, I'd argue, uh, history offers a useful perspective on our own concerns about fraud and trust, answers, I think, the question that Professor Harrington raised, can we get rid of fraud? No. Um, because people in the past, even the distant past, had basically exactly the same concerns about fraud and trust that we have now. So we tend to focus our attention when we study fraud on its negative aspects. But having studied uh, commercial fraud in England between the 13th and the 17th centuries, I have acquired a rather different perspective, one both influenced by and encapsulated in an observation made in an editorial in a New York City commercial newspaper uh, in 1849. So that editorial was written in response to a rather peculiar swindle that actually gave us the term confidence man. And rather than condemn the fraud, the editor recognized in it evidence of something valuable. He wrote that one poor swindler should have been able to drive so considerable a trade on an appeal to so simple a quality as the confidence of man in man shows that all virtue and humanity of nature is not entirely extinct in the 19th century. It is a good thing and speaks well for human nature that at this late day, in spite of all the hardening of civilization and all the warning of newspapers, men can be swindled. In other words, fraud and trust exist in an equilibrium. To eliminate fraud means we must also curtail trust. An important question then becomes, how do we strike the balance between privileging trust enough to facilitate efficient exchange, even though that creates the conditions under which fraud can thrive, and putting costly anti-fraud measures in place in order to stave off a dangerous erosion of trust. So I want to offer two historical examples of this balance between combating deception through regulation uh, or verification and being willing to trust. So the Middle Ages is sometimes held up as a model of a highly trustworthy society. But the people of medieval England didn't seem to hold that view. Even at a time when ordinary folk did business face to face with traders whom they knew, both royal and local governments thought it necessary to regulate the marketplace very closely in order to prevent cheating on weights, measures, quality, price, and to punish what they, at that time, understood to be frauds on the market perpetrated by middlemen. At the same time, sermons and literature tried to impress on people the importance of honesty, reputation, and taking account of the public good. The implication of all this evidence is that there was at least a perception that deceit was common 
and destabilizing of the social and economic fabric. Although preventing fraud in the marketplace to protect consumers was one of the main roles of government, the Crown lacked an enforcement bureaucracy, and so it foisted off those duties onto the towns. So the towns employed bailiffs to enforce marketplace regulations and co-opted artisans to oversee the sale of uh, bread, ale, wine, cloth, fish, prepared foods, and a lot of other wares. In the 15th century, the towns essentially created guilds, largely with the responsibility of disciplining guild members who tried to deceive consumers with shoddy products. But the reality is that the towns and the guilds could do only so much to enforce these very strict laws that they had on their books. Uh, the records of both the town and the guild courts demonstrate that those charged with enforcement fell back on compromises. They let common minor transgressions slide, often eventually commuting them into very small annual taxes paid by all producers of a particular commodity, whether or not you could prove that they had cheated. When a trader uh, committed a deception that was too egregious to ignore, the courts came down harder, though still not as hard as the penalties that were imposed by law. They, these courts also showed a great deal of patience with repeat offenders. The penalties increased, but it took many instances before the enforcers came even close to imposing the punishment mandated by royal legislation. In addition, even being a repeat offender was not enough to prevent one from having standing in society as uh, oftentimes it was the most powerful members of the community who were the worst corner cutters. So it's very easy, of course, to find explanations for the behavior of the enforcers beyond the structural limits on their capacity for enforcement, the unwillingness of the leaders to discipline men of their own class, regulatory capture by the cheaters themselves, a sense that reputation would police the market, the eventual realization by the guilds that they were fighting a losing battle against consumers who wanted cheap goods, even if those were knockoffs of inferior quality, and the belief in some towns that lax enforcement would encourage economic growth by, uh, by enticing artisans and traders to those towns. Of course, none of this should sound unusual for us. At the same time, even the most under-enforcing locales understood there were limits that markets had to be governed well enough to ensure confidence in trade or buyers and sellers would vote with their feet. And so the question was just where that line was. And that line differed from market to market, just as locating the same line varies across time and place today. So my second quick example is about my favorite fraudster, Robert Swadden, a serial con man operating in the early 17th century, and whose career we can trace for about 15 years. Swadden scammed the system of bills of exchange by which a person moved money by paying it to an agent in one place and then seeking repayment of that same amount from the agent's principal in another place. Swadden went around the country convincing provincial merchants to pay on bills supposedly drawn on the merchant's London agent, but which were forgeries. So in this one particular case, Swadden goes to Cambridge, he asks around for who is a prominent merchant regularly doing this exchange with London, and he is directed to Nathaniel Craddock. So going by the name of Mr. Johnson, and 
making show and semblance to be a man of credit and reputation. Swadden told Craddock a story about needing money in the countryside and not wanting to carry cash with him from London. So Craddock agreed to pay 80 pounds, which was quite a large amount of money, in Cambridge because he believed that Swadden would already have paid Craddock's agent in London. Swadden wanted to pay in London on Friday, get the money in Cambridge on Saturday, but Craddock was not willing to trust that readily. And so he refused because he says, every Friday my London agent sends me a letter with news and I receive it on Saturday. So if you want your money, you're gonna to have to come on Monday. So Swadden shows up with the bill on Monday supposedly evidencing that he had paid Craddock's agent in London on Friday. Of course, the bill was a forgery. Craddock looks at the bill. He thinks he recognizes the handwriting, but he says, you know, I got my letter on Saturday from my agent and he didn't mention you. Swadden says, oh, but of course he didn't. It took me so long to get the money together that it was late in the day by the time I got to pay him. Craddock thought this was perfectly reasonable he hands over the money, never sees it again. Here, what's interesting is Craddock had his own private verification mechanism, but he ignored it, demonstrating that even suspicious merchants could be made to trust fairly easily. Swadden looked the part, the bill looked authentic, and that sufficed for Craddon to put aside his concerns. Did Craddock err in how he balanced the costs of trusting versus verification? In hindsight, it would appear so, and yet, presumably, he had done this exact exchange successfully many times before without being scammed. So how many times previously had he trusted without verifying, and how much were those exchanges worth to him? And this leaves us with the question of where to draw the line between rational trusting and paying the cost of fraud prevention. So how do we strike that balance? How vigorous do we want to be in the prosecution and prevention of fraud, and how much do we leave to trust? Courts and governments have struggled with this question for centuries and centuries, and as it turns out, this is exactly the question that's going to be discussed in the next panel. So I think we, we heard a couple of different uh, approaches to economics and economic analysis as a lens on the problem of fraud. Um, one view and emphasized maybe more with a focus on the economics profession, uh, a hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil sort of approach, just ignore, ignore the existence of the phenomenon. Um, we also, we also heard a different take from, from Emily, Professor Cadence, emphasizing the centrality of trade-off analysis, whether people were encasing that uh, explicitly in an economic uh, frame or not. And I, I guess I would just invite to start the conversation uh, some thoughts from any of you about uh, how one makes sense of those two different approaches and where particularly separate from the question of uh, how the economics profession as a whole has approached the question of fraud what the what, what the best 
use of economic thinking is uh, in, in striking trade-off analysis of various kinds around uh, the tough questions posed by, by the incidents of fraud. Um, if, if I could address, I, I don't, I don't want to be accused of giving an economic analysis. <laughs> um, one of the really interesting things that you know, Professor Black said, and is so true also in the history of uh, economics, is just the complete ignoring of fraud. It's like it doesn't exist. There's a two-volume, 1,100-page history, Cambridge history of capitalism, and the word fraud, or fraudulent, or you know, derivatives of fraud, appears in that in those two volumes less than 15 times, and it's a world history of capitalism. It does not appear in the sections about Western capitalism, um, so it's very orientalizing. Uh, words like deceit, deception, all of that don't appear in the index at all. The word fraud doesn't appear in the index at all. It's like none of this exists. It's all just sort of this movement toward you know, the, 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 the great market. And I think what's so incredibly limiting about not studying fraud, and a little bit of what Greg was talking about with his, um, his, his very interesting article about you know, sort of you know, creating a, a, a law of deception category, is so much of our law in particular related to con consumer protection, is being driven by the fact that people cheat. And so you have to protect, in some cases, you know, buyers. And yet, um, legal scholars ignore the study of fraud. All of this regulation of the, not all, but a lot of the regulation of the market is being driven by the fact that even economists admit that Human beings have a rational interest in being opportunistic, and then they just sort of ignore that. It's like, just move on, nothing to see here. And so it's kind of, it's like studying the past or studying the law or studying economics with one hand tied behind your back. Because by not acknowledging the driver behind all of these factors, you don't really understand why these laws or rules or marketplace regulations come into existence. I think it fits in a bunch of the things we've been saying. So criminology, of course, is a kissing cousin of sociology, right? Uh, uh, it was created by a sociologist. For example, all of my professors in my doctoral program were sociologists. And so we always think institutionally, and it comes back to this point. Um, and even when we study fraud, it's often because it's, it's such a neat story, right? I mean, it, it's really compelling and, and it does have insights, but for example, um, here are two frauds uh, historically and they're not limited to fraud. Criminals are not super specialists. They tend to be generalists. They tend to be opportunists. These examples will show it. One, opium wars right? That was a physician, a British physician or Scottish physician, 
who deliberately introduced opium in violation of Chinese laws, had his opium seized by the Chinese government and burned, and therefore went back to parliament and said, we need to stage a war. And by the way, I'm a smuggler, so I know exactly the draft of every river, and I can show you exactly how the British Navy can destroy and win this, all right? The consequences of the opium wars for people directly and for geopolitics to this day are staggering. The first corp true corporation in the world is usually considered the VOC, uh, the Netherlands uh, version, right? Those folks were given, and again, this is the sociology, it ain't just private. They were quasi-public, quasi-private. They had governmental powers granted by the state for piracy, for murder, for slavery. They could do anything and everything to anyone that wasn't an ally of the Dutch. And there weren't that many allies in the field, force, the field of operations where they were. So spices in that era were the most valuable thing you can imagine in terms of price. They made fantastic amounts of money and destroyed and devastated huge portions of the world, right? Opioid sales, tobacco sales, these are all done through fraud and addiction. These are deliberate strategies. Isn't the only thing, but is by far the biggest thing that produces, and we're talking about over 100 million people's lives lost globally to these things, right? These are staggeringly huge things, and it isn't the little guys. It's what happens is when there is somebody controlling a seemingly legitimate entity, and they always form institutional partnerships with the government because we are stronger together in predating on the world. And that's how it works. So I'll just leave you. The economic estimate on the great financial crisis, which was driven by looting overwhelmingly, is that the lost GDP in present value is 40, in just the United States, is 41.7 trillion. That's with a T, a thousand billion. 41.7 trillion dollars. We are talking about things that have staggering negative externalities. And that's economic analysis. That's economic analysis. You may have, it's interdisciplinary, right? That's <laughs> what I think all of us are saying. And yes, history is vital in all of this. And white collar criminologists do study history. Economists used to, and there's been an effort over the last 40 years to drive economic history out of the doctoral um, curriculum. I'll just say briefly, um, thinking about uh, economics and legal theory, um, and this is a little bit of, of history of, of legal scholarship, right? Um, uh, you know, when in the 1970s, when economists or actually law professors learned a little bit of economics, um, they were working, and this is the way microeconomics works. You simplify, you develop a model. The model that they developed, the neo that they used or deployed, the neoclassical model, um, uh, uh, assumes um, 
transparency. It assumes per perfect knowledge. And that's a simplifying assumption that is enormously, that, and the model is very powerful. Um, and so you can generate a lot of results with it. You can explain a lot. Uh, 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 in the 70s and 80s and 90s, a group of, of uh, legal scholars could just, it was an enormously productive approach to explaining, well, I do contract law, so explaining aspects of contract law. Um, but of course, models, by simplifying, they leave stuff out, right? And so, in a way, it didn't fit in the model. So, for, and I'll just, one comment from contract law, right? Think about the, think about the theory of efficient breach that I trust many of you have encountered in your, in your studies. Um, the theory of efficient breach assumes that uh, the non-breaching party knows that a breach has happened, right? Um, uh, the model doesn't leave room for ignorance, and so, so it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't take account of the idea that, well, maybe what if the breacher lies about their breach? What then? Um, and so, you know, how should I say this? I, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of economic analysis of law, actually. I think it has a lot. It, it, it has taught me a lot. But we have to be very aware of its limiting, limiting um, assumptions in how it works. Just one note, Akerlof in 1970 in a market for lemons right. Uh, right. killed uh, <laughs> um, perfect information. And we haven't taught perfect information for you know, over 50 years in economics. But lost. <laughs> right. Well, so this is this is the story of sort of there's an interesting story about about how economics got into legal scholarship, and who was using it, why, um, and in non-expert ways in some cases. Well, in ways directly contrary to economics, but calling it economics. So we, we have. Well, I don't know if, if Brooke or Tess, you want to address this before. So, um, so we have. Actually, a question that's come in that, that I think builds on this discussion. So one, one economic challenge um, with thinking about fraud regulation or anti-fraud regulation is re resource allocation. So you can think about uh, after the fact, when you're confronted with, an, with some type of deception, how are you going to respond with either civil actions and penalties or criminal prosecution? Alternatively, you can think about modes of prevention and market structuring. So the, the, the question here is, given that trust in the deceiver is a necessary precondition to the perpetration of a fraud, are, regulation, are regulators' efforts better focused there? How do we encourage consumers to be skeptical and discerning in their trust? And I suppose one might add to that the question of, of other economic counterparties, uh, where often we presume sophistication uh, in the last couple of generations and, and sometimes uh, without good basis for doing so something that you spend several chapters in your unbelievably phenomenal book on the history of American fraud discussing about like how the um, the agricultural magazines would publish information about frauds that are occurring to try to educate their readership and uh, was it better business bureaus would put on uh, radio advertisements and things like that to try to um, educate the readership and if I recall correctly, you suggested that was a fairly successful approach to trying to lessen the appeal of the deceptive, um, uh, you know, sales or, or, or whatever. 
But let, let's pull that into the present, though. Um, we, we live in a world awash in both information and disinformation, and with less popular trust in experts and institutions if one believes public opinion surveys. Um, so so what's, a, what's a government to do? I mean, our emphasis at all times as regulators was it's far better to stop the fraud than to punish people after the fraud exists. So we thought, in jargon, in terms of avoiding uh, criminogenic environments. That's an environment in which the incentives are sufficiently perverse that these kinds of frauds become really pervasive. I'll tell you, uh, the consumer education, that's what I do, right? I spend most of my life in it. It doesn't work. Um, in terms of actually start stopping sophisticated frauds. And I'll give you the scariest thing that you can look up. The Fed uh, hired outside consultants and they went and you know, they tried different things with the different focus groups of real people and such. And they tried to explain that the loan broker, the mortgage loan broker was in a direct conflict of interest with the customer, right? That their interests are absolutely hostile. People wouldn't believe them because they would not, and the feedback was, they wouldn't believe them because they didn't believe in America, we would allow a business to operate in which the business plan of the business was screw customers, period. There's a, a field of study called the New Institutional Economics. Um, people like Oliver Williamson, do you guys study that in, in law school? Okay, so new institutional economics talks about things like market failures, things that governments have to do or organizations have to do because markets alone can't do them. One of them is regulation, also things like redistribution. But the key mechanism underlying market failure, or one of them is um, transaction costs, that certain kinds of activities, like trying to prep all 340 million people in America to be better detectors of fraud, that's just incredibly costly from a, a practical point of view. Um, the other key mechanism behind this new institutional economics that explains why we have governments and organizations is what's called information asymmetry and opportunism, like in the market for lemons. Your used car dealer knows more about the car that she's trying to offload onto you than, than you do. And, part of the transaction costs that you bear as the buyer is trying to figure out if, if you're being sold a lemon. That amps up the cost of the used car, um, not just in what you spend to have a mechanic check it out, but in your time. It, it just takes a lot of time, and that's a, that's a quantifiable cost to you as well. So rather than, let me back up a second. In the United States, my observation as as someone who's native born here, is that we have a tendency to really want to explain things in terms of individuals, just the individual level of analysis. Everything is choice, choice, choice. But we don't talk enough about, well, who gives us the menu from which we choose? I mean, obviously, we don't have infinite choice. We get a selection of options. Who makes the selection? That rarely gets talked about. Having worked and lived um, overseas, mostly in, in European welfare states for a little over a dozen years. In those environments, the hand of the state is much clearer and people talk more about, well, why do we have these menus? Why can we only make these choices? Why can't we have better choices? 
So what I'd like to insert into this conversation is to sort of pop us up a couple levels of analysis. Instead of talking about training individuals to be better detectors of fraud, which is sort of like saying, why don't we teach people to be better detectors of polluted water? Like, why not just regulate the water supply better so people don't have to do that? Not because that's a nice thing to do. I mean, it is, it's the right thing to do. But do you wanna have a productive and functional society? If the answer is yes, you cannot have individuals engrossed in the task of trying to figure out in every single transaction, is this person trying to screw me? Is this water gonna poison me? We're not too far from the, the back of the yards, you know, the, the stockyards that uh, Upton Sinclair wrote about in um, uh, jungle. the jungle, thank you. Do you really used to thinking of unsophisticated frauds in which it's obvious to many people before the fraud and certainly obvious afterwards that they've been defrauded in the great financial crisis roughly a million times a year the loan brokers extorted the appraiser to inflate your appraised value by very large amounts how in god's name were you supposed to discover that even after the fact the victims do not know that they are victims of that fraud. Right, so essentially, unless you fix or tightly constrain um, the power of states to sponsor or enable fraud, you cannot have a functional society. Even Alan Greenspan, you know, acolyte of Ayn Rand, was saying 23 years ago, basically you can't have capitalism without trust. No, I don't, I don't think anyone has yet quantified what that threshold is, but we know what it looks like when people dip below that level. We call those places failed states. Like you can do commerce in Somalia or in um, Bolivia. Lots of people do business there, but in failed states, whatever money you make, you goes right back out the door again when you pay for your private security services, when you can't have a bank account. Um, in Russia, there's a reason that like 20% of Russians to this day don't have indoor plumbing because their institutions have broken down to the point where you cannot trust people in, in basic ways that we all take for granted in the US. Like you can't trust that the money you put in the bank is gonna be there tomorrow. So yeah, I would, I would encourage us to move away from individual based solutions because I don't think at a practical level we have the resources to do that and I don't think it will it would be productive even if we did allocate resources to that just to uh, just, just was looking to, to get in more go ahead I mean one of the ways that we ask individual one of the primary regulatory mechanisms for policing fraud or for preventing fraud is manda mandating disclosure right so mandatory disclosure is is ubiquitous and it's one of the ways that you that we ask that we make for example firms um, disclose things to consumers and disclosures I, I have I sometimes study disclosure from a sort of psychological perspective and it's a, it's a really interesting mechanism because it feels so good <laughs> you feel like yeah disclosure is a way of doing something that feels so uncontroversial who doesn't want more information give people that's, that feels great right and it's sort of um, 
it sort of honors the agency of all parties. Like, you're not just a pawn in the system, you're not just a victim. You too can have information and you can make rational choices. Um, it's, not, it's not infantilizing, right? Um, but mandatory disclosure, one of the interesting things that come out of the research in the last maybe 10 or 15 years about disclosures is the possibilities that they actually have perverse consequences, which I think is a little bit of what Phil was talking about. Um, and so there's a couple of nice studies in which they basically have these sort of, you know, contrived lab scenarios, but they have someone basically giving bad advice, giving bad advice to, to people take in an experiment. And sometimes they have the bad advice giver announce before the bad advice. I'm financially motivated to give you bad advice and then to give the bad advice. And people are, in, in, in some context, more likely to take the bad advice after the disclosure. They think, well, this guy's trustworthy. <laughs> Already telling me anything. Or they think, now it's going to seem really rude if I don't take the advice. Right Now it seems like I'm accusing them of something. Um, and so it's the disclosure is a pretty interesting area in part because I think our own intuitions about what it's going to do are not particularly right. Like you have the intuition, like, yeah, I'm going to get this information. I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to respond sort of rationally that it comes in. And in fact, all these disclosures come in in this sort of rich social context in which oftentimes the disclosure does exactly the opposite thing of what, what you're hoping. It's like label fatigue and products liability law. Um, I just want to play devil's advocate. I'm not saying this because I believe it, but uh, 19th century England was sort of the one, the world's one laissez-faire experiment. Um, and there was a point in time in the second half of the 19th century where scholars have estimated that over one third of all corporations that were chartered were fraudulent and they're selling stock and it's totally fraudulent. Um, there was, uh, and, and so, so just to pick up on um, what Professor Wilkinson Ryan was saying is that there was a, the reaction of the parliament ultimately took, took a couple of decades, but the reaction ultimately was to mandate more disclosure. This didn't really seem to help a whole lot, but that was the reaction. There was a pamphlet written by a German journalist in London talking about just the unbelievable um, amount of fraud that there was in London, in, in the sort of the London financial economy. And comparing it to some extent with the much heavier governmental regulation of corporations uh, in continental Europe. Now here's the interesting thing. The English economy was far more dynamic and far wealthier than the German and the French economies, which were countries that were much larger. So somehow, even though these, these stock frauds were just devastating the English middle class over and over and over again, somehow, at least in the short term, that was not translating to, to devastating the English economy. However, in the great financial crisis, it did. Well, I mean, it's one question is, is, is something um, about the modern economy so different from what it was in the 19th century that you cannot draw a historical lesson at all? I mean, is it perhaps that, that the world is so much more interconnected than it was? 
certainly the percentage of the economy that is in finance and services is, is much, much Although higher. the purchase of stocks was a, a really significant investment for just middle-class people in 19th century England. You didn't have the kind of bank offerings that we've got now. So there have been some questions coming in um, that, that I think build on this in some ways. Uh, several of them relate to the question of uh, something that you've all alluded to, which is the, the, the significance of power differentials, either between, uh, at the individual level, people who have a hierarchical relationship of some kind, or perhaps more importantly, uh, when you have really powerful institutions, particularly large corporations, um, operating. Um, one way to put this would be the, the greater one's social capital, the greater the expectation of, but also allowance or maybe affordance for fraud. Um, so uh, interest in, in uh, getting thoughts of the panel on uh, how, if one accepts that premise, um, what does it mean for the legal system and its ability to hold structures accountable? Uh, is this even possible when those with power to limit fraud are the ones most expected to engage in it? Can I give another historical piece of insight on how this is actually flipped on its head? In the Middle Ages, um, poor women were regulated more heavily than uh, male sellers. The, you've heard the word huckster, and that's a quick you know, synonymous with fraud. Um, a huckster was a poor woman who would buy usually food products that were on sale in the market, and then she would resell them. She would carry them around to, you know, outside of the, the boundaries of the market. She'd carry them around the town on a, you know, a thing that she wore around her neck, like a basket, and, and some bread, fish, um, meat pies, things like that. So the, th there was nothing originally um, bad about the term huckster. Uh, um, the male equivalent was a hawker. Now, a hawker has never acquired the connotation of fraud, but a huckster did. And these very, very poor women, I mean, really, really women living at the margins of society, were considered a significant threat to um, the you know, trustworthiness of the market because by being um, middlemen, they raised prices. And that was considered to be tantamount to fraud. So it's just this, this very extremely gendered and the, you know, flipping the whole power differential thing on its head. It seems like there's, there's like an embedded question. It's not just about who's whose fraud is policed, but about which behaviors are getting called fraud at all. So sometimes it's gonna be obvious, right? But I think this is sort of implicit in your question, mm. right? But, um, but if you think about, for example, the use of um, the access to state benefits or using the bankruptcy system, right? The, sometimes people will describe those behaviors like using the bankruptcy system as something savvy that obviously you would do because this is a smart financial move. And other times it's described in more sort of conniving or fraudulent terms, like you've taken advantage of the system. And I guess in my anecdotal sense would be that this is associated with um, this is associated with the power of the of the individual. Like the, that it's 
get more leeway for your scheme to be called genius or, or rational, right, if you have more social power. So in economics, uh, they explicitly say power is a naive explanation of any economic, they actually use the phrase naive uh, in all that, so it's more of the sleight of hand. But yeah, I mean, you, you talked about uh, Alan Greenspan. How did Alan Greenspan get to be chairman of the Federal Reserve? Well, he was the expert consultant for the worst fraud in the savings and loan crisis, Charles Keating, who used him to personally recruit the five senators who became known as the Keating Five. To do what? to extort us, the regulators, not to take action against him. Alan Greenspan, in the course of that, wrote that Lincoln Savings posed no foreseeable risk of loss. Lincoln Savings was the most expensive failure in history uh, at the, before the great financial crisis of $3.4 billion. And then, after the disaster, President Reagan appointed him chairman of the Federal Reserve an Ayn Rand groupie, the executive of Ayn Rand state, right? But Bill Clinton twice reappointed Alan Greenspan. We fail upwards with power in modern finance. Every CDO, collateralized debt obligation, was absolute toxic waste. And every single one on average, 80% of the tranches were rated AAA, the highest possible rating. And they always, directly contrary to law and economics, these fraudsters always hire top-tier auditors. And they do it because they can get a clean opinion, and that reputation assists their fraud. So, so uh, Brooke, you want to get in, then I want to follow up on that. Uh, just to... To footnote what you said, Professor Black, we said uh, we fail upward um, in finance. I would say uh, white guys fail upwards in well, finance. There's a some of us fail down too. <laughs> sociologists understand um, race and gender in part as status categories. There, status categories that are interlinked with certain um, rights to, to enter the market and be remunerated for our human capital. But they also come with, um, I don't know, kind of uh, like franchises that we are allowed to exploit. And say, whiteness gives you a certain, uh, like a hunting license to exploit other people. Um, maleness does too. And if you, you get both, then it's not considered such a, a violation of norms that you would engage in fraud. Like then that's how you get people who, who are intelligent and are probably perfectly nice and moral people like Gregory Mankiw saying, well, you would be irrational not to commit fraud. I don't think that applies equally to all of us by race and gender. I, I think that's a, that has a lot of implicit um, status built into it. So it would be interesting to, so this is, this is where Professor Wilkinson Ryan's work starts to intersect with, with sociology. Psychology, sociology, economics, and criminology really sort of come together in history too. So I'd be interested to see what the rest of you think of that. 
Bastiat captured what all of you have been saying, you know, when plunder becomes a way of life in society, um, men of power find a way to make it legal and they create a moral code that glorifies it. That's what Anthony Trollope said in The Way We Live Now in the 1850s, I think, too. At the same time, we, we need to keep in mind that not every business is equally rapacious. Some seem to have actual internal cultures that uh, uh, cut against this kind of behavior rather strongly. Uh, Bill, you mentioned the intermediaries, the ratings agencies, the auditors, one might add the lawyers, both the ones internal to the corporation and Judge those. Judge Sporkin's famous opinion. Um, so uh, I, I guess I would, and we might get just a little bit of commentary about this, and then I think we're going to need to take a break, but this may, may also be a good link to the next panel as well. Um, what accounts for the circumstances in which those intermediaries function with some degree of public spiritedness or concern for professional ethics, as opposed to when the larger structures of incentives or, or wider culture, as you just described, uh, Bill, uh, create a, a circumstance where that behavior gets crowded out? Right. This is why it is so massively different when the person who controls a seemingly legitimate entity can use its prestige and resources. So it, this is called aggression's dynamic. Uh, Akerlof didn't invent it, but he used the first one to give a term for it in 1970 in the market for lemons. And it's when you gain a competitive advantage by cheating, bad ethics will drive good ethics out of the marketplace. And therefore, in these contexts, not in all contexts, but in these contexts, cracking down on fraud really does allow honest people uh, to compete uh, successfully. The first place in print that I know of is the uh, Swift in Gulliver's Travel uh, explains the Gresham's dynamic about the Lilliputians. Uh, I think that it's, um, I've written uh, a theory of um, small cheats, which I think is that there's an acceptable level of marginal cheating, perhaps justified by the idea, well, everybody is doing it. And that perhaps gets taken into account um, in transactions. Then it's the people who commit the big cheats that get paid attention to. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody else is being scrupulously honest. It means that they're all cheating, uh, or they're all willing to cheat within a, uh, a certain limit, and that that's okay. And that's essentially what uh, the, the guy at Duke, um, who is a little bit been discredited now, the the behavioral economist, whose name is now escaped. Ariely. Yeah, Ariely. It, it, his that's what he claims that his experiments show is that people are willing to cheat if they think they won't get caught. They're willing to cheat up to a certain amount, but they won't be on that because they still want to consider themselves to be honest people. The famous American sports phrase is, "If you're not cheating, you're not, not trying." trying. Well, I think we're going to have ample opportunity uh, to explore several of these themes in greater detail in specific contemporary contexts in the next panel. I want to thank.
this panel for getting us off to a fantastic start.